This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this bite-sized bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Leica Microsystems. Leica Microsystems develops and manufactures microscopes and scientific instruments for the analysis of microstructures and nanostructures. Widely recognized for optical precision and innovative technology, the company is one of the market leaders in compound and stereo microscopy, digital microscopy, confocal laser scanning and super resolution microscopy with related imaging systems, electron microscopy sample preparation, and surgical microscopy. Today's presentation is titled, How to Conduct Localized Proteomics of Microscopic Regions, and is being presented by Dr. Eleanor Drummond, who is a research assistant professor at New York University. Eleanor completed her PhD in neuroscience at the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia. She studied the role of beta amyloid and sex hormones in Alzheimer's disease. She was then recruited to New York University School of Medicine as a postdoc. She's currently a research assistant professor of neurology at NYU, where she uses proteomics to understand the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen. And I'll put them to Eleanor at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available within the next 24 to 48 hours at bit.ly slash localized proteomics. That's bit.ly slash localized proteomics, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Eleanor, for the presentation. Thank you for the introduction and hello everyone. Today, I will be describing our recently developed method that allows localized proteomics of microscopic amounts of formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue microdissected using laser capture microdissection. First, I'll describe the optimization of this technique and then I'll discuss the type of results that can be generated using this technique, using our recently published study examining protein differences in amyloid plaques between rapidly progressive and sporadic Alzheimer's disease as an example. There are many advantages of using a mass spectrometry-based proteomics approach in order to understand disease pathogenesis. For example, it allows a quantitative analysis of potentially thousands of proteins at once which means that we can look at disease-specific protein changes from a network level in comparison to the more tradition, traditional reductionistic approach of examining protein changes in single proteins at once. It also allows the discovery of novel proteins involved in disease pathogenesis because it's an unbiased technique. It's not limited by the availability and specificity of antibodies which is a limiting factor for more traditional protein analysis techniques, such as immunohistochemistry, Western blot, and ELISA. It also allows the analysis of post-translational modifications, which are known to have an important role in disease. Now, my lab main focus is that of uh, studying neurodegenerative diseases, in particular, Alzheimer's disease. And to date, there have only been a limited number of proteomic studies analyzing tissue collected from neurodegenerative disease patients. And one of the main reasons for this is because there's a limited amount of human tissue available to study. And there's also been technical limitations associated with using mass spectrometry, particularly for small amounts of human tissue. 
However, in saying that, in recent years, there's been an increase in the number of proteomic studies that have analyzed neurodegenerative disease tissue. These studies typically analyze pieces of frozen human brain tissue that have been homogenized. These pieces include a variety of cell types, for example, neurons, glia, and endothelial cells found in blood vessels. And given this, they do not allow the localized analysis of specific populations of cells or neuropathological lesions. Therefore, it was our overall research aim to develop a method that allows localized proteomics of individual cells or neuropathological features microdissected from formal and fixed paraffin embedded brain tissue. So why did we want to use formal and fixed paraffin embedded brain tissue or FFPE tissue? This is because the majority of human tissue specimens, particularly those from the brain, are FFPE tissue blocks that are collected at autopsy. Previously, researchers have shied away from using this type of tissue for proteomics because of the concern that protein crosslinks generated during the FFPE processing would prevent the detection of proteins using mass spectrometry and lead to inferior results in comparison to frozen tissue. However, we and an increasing number of other groups have shown that FFPE tissue can actually generate similar proteomic results as frozen tissue, as long as the correct technique is used. And in our case, FFPE tissue is actually quite an attractive option for, you, for performing localized proteomics, as there are no concerns about protein degradations during the potentially lengthy microdissection process. We first explained our technique in our report that was published in 2015 in Scientific Reports. And in this study, we used FFP human brain tissue and we microdissected neurons from a case of Alzheimer's disease, totaling 1.5 millimeters squared of total tissue area. Using our method, we identified approximately 400 proteins. A similar study came out in 2015 also from a separate group who performed a very similar experiment, but in their case used frozen human brain tissue. They also microdissected neurons that totaled 1.5 millimeters squared of total area. And we were encouraged to see that they saw a similar number of proteins. In their case, they found 300 proteins. So going forward, we were happy to see that our technique was not only comparable when comparing FFP tissue and fresh, fresh frozen tissue, but also in our case, it was actually detecting uh, a few more proteins than when using frozen tissue. I'll also give a little bit of uh, background about Alzheimer's disease as that, as that is our main research focus and that is the context in which I'll be describing the use of this technique for this talk. Alzheimer's disease is defined by cognitive impairment and the presence of neuropathological hallmarks, that is amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. Amyloid plaques are primarily consisting of aggregated beta amyloid. And you can see examples of amyloid plaques present in the human brain in this top panel of images here. You can see amyloid plaques shown in green in all of these images um, at low magnification in A and B and at higher magnification in E and F. Neurofibrillary tangles primarily consist of an aggregated different protein that is hyperphosphorylated tau. And you can see the distribution and localization of neurofibrillary tangles in the human brain in the bottom panel of images, again showing the tangles in green at low magnification and high magnification. Another key feature of Alzheimer's disease is that specific populations of neurons 
are selectively vulnerable to the disease process and why this happens is not yet known. Therefore, given all of these very localised pathological changes that occur in Alzheimer's, we found that localised proteomics was a, an attractive way to try and understand the underlying causes for the generation of these plaques and tangles and also to try and understand why very specific cell populations are vulnerable in the disease. Therefore, we developed our localised proteomics method, of which you can see a schematic of here. For our method, as I mentioned, we use formal and fixed paraffin embedded blocks of tissue collected at autopsy. Sections of, these, of this tissue is then collected onto LCM compatible slides, where they are then de-waxed and rehydrated and then stained. So far we have tested out fluorescent and DAB immunohistochemistry, as well as cressel violet histological stain, which is used to identify neurons. Then a sufficient number of neuropathological lesions or cells of interest are then microdissected using laser capture microdissection or LCM. LCM uses a very precise laser to very accurately microdissect out either cells or very small regions of interest that then fall by gravity into the cap below. As I mentioned, our focus is Alzheimer's disease and we have used our technique to microdissect out plaques, which you can see in these images here, both before and after LCM, tangles here, stained with DAB immunohistochemistry before and after LCM, and neurons stained with cressel violet, shown before and after LCM. Once a sufficient number of either neurons or neuropathological features have been microdissected, samples are then treated for proteomics and processed. The first step that they undergo is an additional deparaffinization step, which uses a heating protocol in order to perform this extra deparaffinization. We have actually found that this step is exceptionally important. In fact, in our first set of optimization studies, we actually found that the inclusion of this heating protocol increased the number of proteins that we detected using proteomics by eightfold. Then, depending on the type of sample that you're using, they can also undergo an additional formic acid solubilization step. We use this particularly for our amyloid plaques that we are microdissecting because they contain very aggregated clumps of proteins and the formic acid helps um, unaggregate these proteins, which makes them more amenable to the trypsin digestion and then detection using mass spectrometry. Samples are then reduced and alkylated and then digested with trypsin. Samples are then analyzed using LCM-SMS and then they, the peptide levels are analyzed and quantified using bioinformatics approaches. And for some more information, more detailed information about this method, uh, we've published three protocol papers for which you can see the references for at the bottom of the slide. So as this was the first time that studies like this had been done, particularly by us, we had a number of questions that we wanted to first um, determine the answer to and optimize the technique in order to try and generate the maximum amount of proteomic data we could. The first question that we had was how much tissue do we need? In order to answer this question, we microdissected out increasing areas, tissue areas of neurons from an Alzheimer's disease brain, as you can see here. We microdissected out total tissue areas of the equivalent of 0 0.5, 1, 1.5, 2, and 2.5 millimetres squared. And we actually saw, as you can see by the graph here, 
that 1.5 millimetre squared total tissue area resulted in um, adequate, uh, showed that it was sufficient for performing reliable LCMS, detecting approximately 400 proteins in each sample. And as you can see, microdissection of increasing tissue areas, for example, two and 2.5 millimetres squared, uh, didn't really result in an increased number of proteins detected using mass spectrometry, suggesting that 1.5 millimetres squared of total tissue area was sufficient. We also wanted to determine, are these proteins that we're detecting, are they useful for, what, uh, for the future experiments that we were planning to do? Therefore, we developed two different databases, the first of those proteins known to be neuronal and the second of those proteins known to be associated with Alzheimer's disease, as these are the types of proteins that we were hoping to be able to quantify in our samples. And we were happy to see that the majority of neurons, uh, sorry, the majority of proteins that we were detecting were in fact neuronal and a, a large proportion of them have been previously known to be associated with Alzheimer's disease. This shows us that we were able to not only pro produce reliable results, but also potentially meaningful data in terms of helping us understand what was occurring in, during the process of Alzheimer's disease in the brain. The next question that we wanted to answer was what is the optimal lysis method? As we're all aware, the type of lysis that is performed on protein samples can dramatically change the number of proteins detected and also the type of proteins that are detected. Therefore, we wanted to determine what is the optimal lysis method in order to maximize the type of proteins that we were interested in seeing. To do this, we performed an experiment comparing three different lysis methods. And in this case, we were using 10 millimeters squared of Alzheimer's cortex tissue which was cut out as uh, large squares using LCM. We compared uh, the protein expression, uh, sorry, protein detection after lysis with direct digestion using trypsin alone and after lysis using Rapagest, uh, which is a mass spectrometry compatible detergent in addition to trypsin and after lysis with Ripper buffer, which is an SDS based detergent in addition to trypsin. We were actually surprised to see that there was no additional benefit that we could see of including either the Rapagest or the Ripper buffer, as there were very similar levels of proteins and types of proteins that were detected after each of the three lysis methods. Therefore, given these similar results, all future experiments were done using the most simple lysis method of the direct digestion with trypsin alone. We then wanted to determine, is tissue staining problematic? In order for us to perform uh, localized proteomics, we have to be able to see the regions of interest that we are trying to microdissect. And for this experiment, and for, to do this, we would have to perform staining. For this experiment, again, we microdissected out 10 millimeters squared of cortex tissue in the same way as we did for the lysis method experiment and we compared the type and number of proteins detected using slides that were de-waxed and rehydrated alone and left unstained, slides that were stained with crestal violet to identify neurons, and slides that were immunostained using a fluorescent immunohistochemistry protocol. As you can see from the Venn diagram at the bottom, there was again no uh, significant difference between the three different types of staining. Therefore, making us confident that each of these types of staining was amenable to the downstream proteomics approach and could be used.
We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Last, we wanted to determine, is tissue archival time a problem? And the answer was overwhelmingly no. Uh, so far for our studies, we have used tissue blocks from approximately 80 different patients. And this tissue has been sourced from multiple brain banks, which likely have very different storage protocols. The archival time of these tissue blocks have ranged anywhere between six months and 15 years. And we have seen no significant proteomic effect after the different archival times of tissue blocks. Therefore, given these promising optimization results, we were very excited to try and use our localized proteomics technique to actually try and answer some questions of interest that we had about Alzheimer's disease. And in the next few slides, I'll go forward explaining the type of data that can be generated using this approach, using our recently published study that came out earlier this year that describes the differences between amylo in amyloid plaques uh, between rapidly progressive Alzheimer's disease and sporadic Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> so get, just to give a little bit of background, the rate of progression of sporadic Alzheimer's disease varies widely between patients. Rapidly progressive Alzheimer's disease is particularly aggressive, where survival is limited to two to three years after diagnosis in comparison to the on average about 13 years for regular sporadic Alzheimer's disease. This rapid cognitive deterioration also uh, often leads to a misdiagnosis of prion diseases, such as CJD. And why AD develops so rapidly in these patients is currently unknown. Therefore, the aim of our study was to use localized proteomics in order to compare the proteome of amyloid plaques from rapidly progressive and typical sporadic Alzheimer's disease. We wanted to do this because proteins that are significantly altered in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's plaques may have an important role in accelerating the development of plaques and also therefore the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Therefore, they have great potential in being new drug targets. So for this study, amyloid plaques were microdissected from 22 cases of rapidly progressive Alzheimer's disease and 22 cases of sporadic Alzheimer's disease. After microdissection, we detected approximately 900 proteins in plaques. And of these, 279 were consistently and abundantly detected in every patient, showing us that there are many, many plaque proteins present. These proteins, we were happy to see, included many proteins previously confirmed by more targeted immunohistochemistry studies to be present in plaques. For example, beta amyloid, which is the main component of amyloid plaques, tau, apolipoprotein E, ubiquitin, GFAP, and clostrin. In all, 86% of these proteins have previously been confirmed to be significantly associated with Alzheimer's disease. But we were also very interested to see that we had actually identified 37 novel proteins for which we have no idea why these proteins are present in uh, amyloid plaques, and a lot of them we don't even know their role or function in the brain. Our main research question for this study, though, was is there a difference between rapid and sporadic plaques? And the answer was overwhelmingly yes. In this figure, you can see that uh, we performed a principal component analysis, which is shown in A, for which you can see each of the sporadic Alzheimer's disease cases shown in green and each of the rapidly progressive Alzheimer's cases shown in blue. 
as you can see, there was a very significant separation between the green and the blue dots, suggesting that there was very significant differences in plant protein composition between the two groups. In all, we found 141 proteins that had significantly altered levels in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's plaques, which is shown in the volcano plot shown in B here. For this plot, every single protein that we detected is represented by an individual point. All of the points shown in red are those proteins with significantly altered levels between rapidly progressive and sporadic Alzheimer's plaques. Those proteins to the left of the plot have significantly decreased levels in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's disease. And those proteins to the right of the plot have significantly increased levels in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's disease. And proteins of interest are shown, uh, identified by their gene names. Obviously, the one protein that we were most excited about was this PODI or ACT-BM, because we actually found this to have 11-fold higher presence in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's plaques. And this is one of our novel proteins. We don't know its role in Alzheimer's disease and we don't know its role in the brain. Therefore, it's currently um, the subject of a further study by our group. The graphs down below show you the enormous amount of data that can be generated by using this technique. For each of these graphs, they correspond to an individual protein. Each of the points on the graphs uh, represents the protein level for an individual patient therefore showing a very significant separation in the protein levels between rapidly progressive Alzheimer's disease and sporadic Alzheimer's disease, for example, this protein PODI slash ACTBM. So I hope you can appreciate from these examples that using this type of approach in order to try and understand disease pathogenesis is very powerful. I like to think of it as the equivalent of performing 900 Western blots at once um, in a very efficient manner. Another interesting finding was that we actually found rapidly progressive Alzheimer's uh, plaques to contain significantly more neuronal proteins and significantly less astrocyte proteins than sporadic Alzheimer's plaques. This is shown in these two graphs here, where again, every, uh, the expression of every protein is present, is shown by an individual point on the graph. Those proteins that are neuronal proteins are shown as point, red points on graph A and astrocyte proteins are shown as red points in graph B. Any proteins falling above the line are proteins that have a higher expression in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's plaques and proteins below the line have lower expression in the plaques. So as you can see, there was a consistent increase in the expression of neuronal proteins in rapid plaques and a significant decrease and consistent decrease in the presence of astrocyte proteins in rapid plaques. We followed up this result uh, using immunohistochemistry and we actually saw that this did correspond uh, in, the, in the case of astrocyte proteins to a significant decrease in the number of plaque associated astrocytes, which you can see in these uh, top two uh, images here. In these images, plaques are shown in red and astrocytes are shown in green. And as you can see in sporadic Alzheimer's disease, there is a much higher number of plaque associated green astrocytes surrounding the red plaques in comparison to what is present in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's disease. Therefore, this validates our proteomic approach, showing us that the um, information that we can gather using localized proteomics does in fact translate into actual findings that are present in the human brain that can give us a lot of information about the disease process itself. 
We also hypothesized that the increased abundance of neuronal proteins in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's plaques could be due to an increased uh, number of dystrophic neurites present inside the plaques, which again are shown in green, stained this time by a protein called SMI312. In this case, we did not find this to be, uh, to be true. There was very similar levels of dystrophic neurites between rapidly progressive and sporadic Alzheimer's plaques, suggesting that the abundance of neuronal proteins present in rapidly progressive Alzheimer's plaques had to be due to another mechanism. Therefore, to conclude, this method allows the quantification of hundreds, if not thousands of proteins from either localized cell populations or neuropathological features that have been isolated from archived human tissue blocks. It generates an enormous amount of data that can be correlated between networks of proteins or multiple proteins from the same family. And it can tell us a lot about disease. The major benefits of this technique are the use of human FFP tissue, of which, as I mentioned, is very abundant and available uh, for uh, research. The detection of proteins in either single cell populations or in neuropathological features. And the use of LCMS, which is a very sensitive technique and can quantify protein levels in an accurate and unbiased manner. Importantly, I'd like to stress that even though I discuss this in the context of the brain and neurodegenerative diseases, this technique can be applied to any study that examines protein expression in FFP tissue, particularly those wanting to examine very localized changes in either small regions or cell populations. Therefore, the use of this technique has the potential to greatly help us to understand disease and hopefully help us in the search for new drug targets. I'd like to finish by thanking all of my collaborators, particularly those from the Department of Neurology and the Proteomics Resource Centre at the NYU School of Medicine. Without this collaboration, this project would not have been possible. I'd also like to thank our collaborators at the School of Population Health and our collaborators at Case Western Reserve University who provided the rapidly progressive Alzheimer's tissue. And I'd like to thank you all for your attention. Thanks. Thanks, Eleanor. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So our first question looks to be from Oh, I'm sorry about mispronouncing your name. Um, Shivri, uh, I'm Dr. Lowry. <laughs> um, what is the sufficient number of cells for LCMSMS studies? Uh, that's a great question. It depends on the type of cells that you're microdissecting. So the reason why I was discussing cells in the terms of uh, total area microdissected is that um, cells can vary in size greatly. Um, even neurons, different neurons from different brain regions can have different sizes. Therefore, uh, we found 1.5 millimeters squared of tissue to be sufficient, which in our case, in terms of cortical neurons, that equated to about 12,000 neurons. But if you have larger cells in different areas of the body, then that, that could vary. Okay. Thank you for the And then we have another question from um, Marit. And they ask, do you detect the antibodies used in immunostating? Uh, that is also interesting. We do. And so okay. you can see the antibodies, but obviously um, in in the case of a study like ours, where we were comparing two different types of um, 
two different uh, disease types, uh, then those proteins can then obviously just be, uh, the levels of those can be equated and uh, normalized between your staining. Great. And then we have a question from uh, Minaj. And they are asking whether this technique could be useful in host microbe um, interaction. And if so, do you have any idea how it can be done? Just like a brief sketch, kind of brief sketching it out. Uh, that's an interesting question. And it's something that has occurred to us as well, because one of the main <laughs> benefits of this technique is that um, we searched our results uh, specifically against a human uh, proteome database. However, uh, the unbiased mass spec approach actually detects uh, if abundant peptides from any species. Therefore, if you, depending on what you search your peptide results against, you could actually see the bacterial proteome of a specific type of bacteria. You could see viruses, and you can also compare that to the proteins present in the human um the human proteome as well so this is another example of how this could be a very powerful approach uh That's used really cool. uh to study uh disease pathogenesis that is really cool um we have a question from um Brigitte and they ask does fixation time influence proteomics data in your setting and how comparable were the different donors concerning the number of proteins that you can identify in the neurons uh, we thought that fixation time would be influential and obviously mm -hmm. when you're dealing with human brain tissue, um, there is some variability in the amount of uh, fixation time, especially when you are receiving brains from different brain banks. So I was kind of expecting to see uh, a big difference in brains that have been left in formalin for mm -hmm. say two weeks in comparison to some that had been left in formalin for four weeks. But we actually find very comparable results. And again, this was this was another really surprising feature. I was very prepared that there would be a lot of variability. Um, and I can't explain why there wouldn't be, except for the fact that um, this is just speculation, that once you have a certain number of uh, uh, formalin bonds between proteins, like it almost plateaus. And if we can uh, break those using the uh, heating deparaffinization process that we use as part of our processing, uh, then it seems to reverse any extra fixation uh, effects that there might be there. That is really surprising because that's the exact opposite Absolutely. of what I would have thought. <laughs> exactly. That was the same as us. Everywhere along the line, we were expecting that this technique would, um, uh, would uh, prove problematic, but it continues mm -hmm. to surprise us. And then we have a question from um, Joe, and they're asking, do you have any idea if plant tissues can be processed by FFP? Um, and if plants that accumulate phenol, if those could be more difficult to extract proteins from? That is a very interesting question. I haven't ever uh, used plant tissue, uh, so <laughs> I wouldn't be able to give you a specific answer. Um, but uh, that would definitely be something worth trying to optimize. Okay, and then we have a question from um, Cola, and they're asking about modifications from the FFPE that you have to take into account with data analysis. Uh, yes, so we took into account um, the uh, the effects of various modifications 
and I would actually have to consult a bi my biostatistician that I work as my bioinformatician who I work with uh, regarding that. But we definitely did take into account uh, uh, very common modifications in order for us to identify, to be confident in the proteins that we we're identifying. That makes sense. I mean, and then um, Thomas asks, can this technique be used with PFA fixed mouse tissue? And they have a follow-up about if it could be used in conjunction with expansion microscopy. Uh, my guess is yes. We haven't uh, personally used mouse tissue, okay. but I don't see any problems. We've used uh, human tissue primarily, um, but we've used human tissue from uh, a variety of different diseases um, and we haven't encountered any problems. So I don't see any issues using mouse tissue. Uh, with regards to the expansion microscopy, uh, that would be interesting the one thing to keep in mind is that if we're so i usually work in terms of the total area of uh tissue that i'm micro dissecting therefore if you're using expansion microscopy i don't know if uh the what we've optimized in terms of the total area how that corresponds to the num number of proteins therefore so where i'm going with this is if you expand the cells uh, would you need to micro dissect out a greater area because you need more proteins, or would that then be sufficient for the proteomics? That would be something that would have to be optimized. Okay. And then Ricardo asks the paraffin present in tissue didn't disturb um, the laser cutting and the gravity collection by the tube at all? Uh, yeah, so with the paraffin um, itself, uh, every time that we did staining, even in those sections that we uh, were referring to as unstained, they were all uh, de-paraffinized, uh, sorry, de they were all de-waxed. And so to do this, we used um, a very typical staining process of xylene and um, ethanol washes, like you do for a regular stain. And so that removed most of the paraffin. Um, and then I think if there was any remaining paraffin um, that could potentially interfere with the mass spec approach, that would then be further removed by the um, additional heating step that we included as the first step of sample preparation. The one thing I would mention here with regards to the xylene is that um, that was the one uh, process that we found necessary to minimize um, in comparison to normal. So we use 30 second, two lots of 30 second xylene washes. This is because the membrane uh, present on the LCM compatible slides actually seemed to uh, uh, get quite friable with longer uh, xylene, with longer exposure to xylene. So I would just suggest minimizing that. But in terms of the paraffin getting in the way of either the microdissection or the proteomics, no, we didn't see any problems. Okay, and then um, Zuel asks, you mentioned dystrophic neurites. Um, could your method also be applicable to analyze other subcellular structures? Yes, and the question, like the, uh, we have had a lot of interest from uh, particularly people working in different types of neurodegenerative diseases. Um, the, and I'm very excited to start working on those. The overwhelming limitation though, is how precisely the laser can cut. So at the moment I'm working on a cell soma level um, and then getting smaller than that into subcellular features um, is a little bit difficult to know how well you're purifying your populations because you'll, you'll always get a little bit of extra surrounding tissue. Therefore, um, in terms of that type of approach, the subcellular approach, mm -hmm. I think the fractionation processes that are available out there, the more biochemical fractionation approaches are maybe a more logical method to use. Okay. 
And then um, Say asks, what do you think is the most, or what do you think is the limiting number of proteins that can be detected with MS with this approach? Um, to be honest, the it depends on what I, well, my feeling is it depends on what type of tissue you're using. Uh, if you're cutting out, say for example, if we cut out the big squares of tissue, we're mm -hmm. detecting up to 2000 proteins. I know that there's more proteins present um, in the proteome. And if you uh, use further fractionation approaches, then uh, you might be able to see more of those proteins. The only limiting feature is that is it's trying to have a compromise between using very small amounts of tissue and detecting all of the proteins present. They don't always match. So you need more protein. Uh, sorry. Yeah, you need larger regions in order to mm -hmm. detect more proteins. But then if you have larger regions, you're, you're losing that localized um, uh, approach, it, which is giving us a little bit more information. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, so you mentioned before that the fixation time doesn't have an effect, but Gherkin asks, um, what about the postmortem delay? Has there, has that had any effect on the number of identified proteins? Yeah, so this is a very regular question and, and we got asked this by the reviewers for our paper and we, uh, we're again surprised to see that the postmortem delay did not appear to have a significant influence in the number of proteins detected, at least you, at least looking at the amyloid plaque proteome. Um, this was uh, surprising, especially considering that for some of the rapidly progressive Alzheimer's cases we were using, they actually had a much longer postmortem delay than regular Alzheimer's cases. And so we sometimes we were looking at maybe um, between two and three days, and we still didn't see the uh, significant difference between two and three days postmortem time versus six hours postmortem time. And so, so yeah, again, surprising, but um, promising. And then Nazira has a follow-up question. Um, they want to know why there was a reduction in the number of detected peptides when the section was greater than two millimeters squared compared to one and a half millimeters squared. Yeah, so that was a little bit surprising too. It was only a small reduction, but one of my, um, this is again a speculation after doing a lot of laser capture microdissection, but mm -hmm. my gut feeling about this is that I uh, cut uh, my neurons into uh, the tubes which contain water and the water itself tends to evaporate after seven hours therefore okay. to cut 2.5 millimeters squared took me a lot it took me about I think it was 11 hours to cut that therefore all of the water it had evaporated from the tube so I actually think that there was we had a bit of a problem of adhesion of the neurons that were cut okay. To the top of the tube therefore we've like we've now adopted this approach if we're cutting large areas that take longer than seven hours to cut it into multiple tubes and then combining them prior to the sample preparation step for the mass spectrometry approach and we've actually found that that gives us much more consistent results and um, we you could use a much more aggressive washing protocol that would be another option as well mm -hmm. And then um, Dimitri asks about um, using this um, method in self-alter. I know that you haven't done that, but um, what do you, th do you think it would work? I, in terms of proteomics for <laughs> cell culture, uh, yes, that would definitely work. And I know uh, our collaborators uh, collaborate with other groups who do that. Uh, but uh, I myself haven't done that. And I don't know about the FFP idea for cell, cu for cell culture. Okay. And then we have a couple of questions about using this technique um, with genomics or isolating viral DNA. Um, 
do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, there are other groups out there mm -hmm. who definitely use laser capture microdissection and perform um, RNA-seq studies. Um, uh, I don't do that myself, but in terms of it being a, a, like a compatible approach, then yes, definitely. That is definitely something that can be done. Okay, and then we have a question about um, the getting a bit more into the specifics of the LCMSMS data acquisition. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a question about: Did you use DDA or DIA, or a DDA or a DIA approach for this? Um, again, if uh, they would like to email me, I could definitely okay. get in touch with our collaborators uh, from the NYU's uh, Proteomics mm -hmm. Resource Center because they were they know a lot more about that process than I do. Okay, and then that brings us to our final question from Chris, and they're asking about um, do the results in comparison, so if you compare the results between the neuronal protein and astrocyte protein studied only, okay, sorry, so they're asking how do the results compare of neuronal protein and astrocyte protein in your method compared to if you study it only in a particular population? Uh, so, sorry, in comparison to just studying neurons alone or just studying yes. astrocytes alone? Yes. Um, yeah, so this is one of the main problems out there. And um, we, uh, in order for me to determine uh, the protein specificity to certain types of cells, I actually used a paper uh, published by Ben Bars group at Stanford. Um, and this is where they actually went through using RNA-seq data, went through and very, very comprehensively um, uh, analyzed the RNA in each of the individual cell types and so then I used that um, information in order for me to tell me is this an astrocyte protein or is this a neuronal protein but data like that is one of the reasons why I want to use this proteomics approach because um, it's actually lacking out there it's mm -hmm. very difficult to get data about um, human um, new ne neuron specific population or human astrocyte specific population especially not especially that coming from an in vivo setting, so coming from the brain, which is likely to be very different from human neurons, say, for example, found in cell culture, because they're obviously, they're going to act and completely differently and they're going to have different proteomes. Therefore, that's another reason why I think that going forward, cutting out individual neurons or cutting out individual astrocytes, this would uh, give us a much greater amount of information about the proteome of, of these individual cells, which we can then compare to disease. Would be that would be fantastic it's a long-term project <laughs> <laughs> well that brings us to the end of the seminar so thank you again eleanor for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion and thanks also to our sponsor like a microsystems and finally thanks to you the audience for taking the time to attend and listen in if you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available, available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you this fall. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Leica Microsystems in Bitesize Bio. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. 
visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 